We've been spending a uh, lot of time working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And it would be interesting to hear how you feel about this by this point. Perhaps you're growing weary of it. We've been spending a lot of time. Maybe you're finding it to be a bit overwhelming. Or maybe it's even a bit discouraging. Especially when you read things like, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Or take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. When you read verses like this, the concepts might feel like something that is out there ahead of you somewhere, but it's just never quite within reach. Maybe the idea is like a mirage in the desert, that it just disappears before you quite arrive, before it becomes reality. And maybe you feel like David in Psalm 139, when he said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. And especially when we read today's text. Maybe you felt the same. The first verse, first two verses, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Now if you are totally honest with yourself, how do you feel when you read that verse? Have you ever questioned that verse, the truth of that verse? Have you ever been tempted to say, yeah, but, but, but it just doesn't work, at least not always. And maybe you felt the same way about some other verses in the Bible. Verses like John 14, 13 and 14. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or John 15, 16. Whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So what are we supposed to do with verses like these? Are these verses just simply blank checks? God signs a check? hand it to you, and you can write anything in there that you want. We can just name whatever we want, and God will give it to us. We'll come back to that question a little bit later. I think sometimes when we study the Bible, we have a bit of a problem. And we develop tunnel vision, and we just zero in on one word or phrase or verse to the point where we lose sight of the bigger picture. And this can happen sometimes in our Bible study groups, maybe in our Sunday school setting, and we might dismantle a verse to smithereens, and yet we miss the truth. We miss what it is saying because we are not looking at it in context. Just a couple examples of that. You can study a leaf all you want, you can look at it under a microscope. You can study every aspect of that leaf. But until you see an entire tree, you will never fully appreciate the significance of a leaf. 
But when you look at that leaf in the context of many other leaves and the entire tree, then you receive a whole new understanding. And I think that's true of the Bible as well. We need to look at verses in the larger picture to understand the significance of that verse. And I'd like to give you another example too here just to help us to understand the significance. I talked about our singing this morning. Music is beautiful and we enjoy singing. But music is beautiful when all the aspects of that music blend together in harmony and in their entirety. And if everyone here this morning would have zeroed in on one note the entire time of our singing, I don't think we would have been very blessed by our singing. We would have missed a lot. In this case, using music as an example, you see one note. Now, there's a bit that you can understand there. You can tell that it's a half note, but not much more. And you don't know the timing, so even the fact that it's a half note might not help you a whole lot. So if we add a little bit of context to that note, we can understand so much more. Now we understand that this song has 4-4 timing, so the half note makes more sense. And if I know what I'm talking about, we can also tell that this song is in the key of C, so that first soprano note must be a do. You can also see the notes that harmonize with that first soprano note. So our understanding has tre tremendously increased. But if this is all that you have, you still don't get much. With this amount of contact, context, you get a little bit of harmony. You don't get much of a tune, and it's still pretty meaningless. Not a lot to enjoy. Now, I'm just curious. Is there anyone here who thinks you might have an idea what song these notes are taken from? Any idea? Okay, well, it looks like we need more context. A little bit of context isn't enough. So we need to look at more context, get a bigger picture. Now we see enough notes to catch a bit of a tune, and we get more harmony. There's enough here that probably some of you might be able to recognize what song this is taken from. One of our favorites here at Weavertown. Many of you receive joy and blessing in singing this. How many of you recognize it at this point? Okay, couple, not a whole lot. We add some words, and it gives us even more context. We shall rest by the side of the river. And I use this as an illustration for how we need to study the Bible. We cannot zero in on just one note or two or three notes and expect to develop a theology out of that. But we need to try to get the bigger picture, looking at something in context. And I think too often, this is how we study the Bible. We take one word or one phrase and we zero in on that with tunnel vision. But we need to recognize that we're just looking at one note. Chris gave us some very helpful input on this subject at Summer Bible School a couple weeks ago. He showed us how the setting can help us understand our situation. Now, if we zero in on Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, without considering the context, we can be misled. 
So let's get back to the question I asked earlier. Are these verses a blank check? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. There are those who teach that this verse is a blank check. They are the ones who preach a wealth and prosperity message. You want something, they say, just ask for it. You want to live in a million-dollar house, just ask for it. You want to drive a brand-new luxury car, just ask for it. You want perfect health? Just ask for it. You want a raise? Just ask for it. Whatever it is, you want it? Just ask for it. But the problem is they are not looking at the whole picture. They are zeroing in on a few notes, as it were. And they are seriously misinterpreting what they are seeing. Now, I would like to remind you something about these verses that John read here. The text for today, they are wonderful, beautiful words. But don't forget that these words are a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't forget that that sermon begins with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if you're not interested in living out the Beatitudes, I'm not sure that you have too much right to claim Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, as a promise. Don't forget that these verses are a part of the same sermon that says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Take no thought for your life. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you're not interested in laying up treasures in heaven, and if you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when Jesus says, for everyone that asketh receiveth, he may not even be talking to you. You see, we need to look at the context. Don't forget that these verses are part of the same sermon that says, if thine eye be single... Thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. And if you find this morning that your eyes are continually distracted by the things of this world, and your vision gets a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this, and your, your, your vision is removed from your focus on the kingdom of God, then we need to remember that when Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you, he is talking to the people who have a singular focus, a sharp, clear focus on the things of his kingdom. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out the principles for life in his kingdom here on earth, for living life in his kingdom. He is talking to kingdom citizens, to those who are willing to live by his principles, and to those who are surrendered to his lordship. That's what being part of the kingdom means. So if we expect to benefit from his promises, if we wish to benefit from his promises, 
we need to submit to his principles. That's the basis for the promise in this verse. The gospel is a package deal. Sometimes we get pretty good at picking and choosing. We like the promises, but we'd rather skip over the conditions. And in our Bible school class a couple weeks ago, Chris uh, pointed out uh, an illustration from that from Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, you might have that verse underlined in your Bible. You might have that verse hanging up on your wall on a motto. You may have written that verse in a note to encourage your friend. But we'd rather skip over the verse just before it that says, after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, where they were living in captivity. After 70 years, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. You see, the very reason they were there in the first place is because they had not been living by God's principles. And God's message was, as you submit to my principles, then... I want you to know that my thoughts toward you are thoughts of peace. So if we're going to accept a Bible this morning, we need to accept the whole Bible. And if we are going to appreciate the Sermon on the Mount, we need to appreciate the entire Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to delight in the words of Jesus, we need to accept all of his words. And if we want to claim Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, we better put a high priority on Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 because they are all part of the same message. Well, that's an introduction. I'd like to look now at these verses, 7 to 11. The title of the sermon this morning is A-S-K. And obviously, those letters spell ask. Jesus said ask and it shall be given to you. They're also an acronym for the three things that he tells us to do. Ask, seek, and knock. If you were observant, you may have already noticed uh, those two things. So as we look at these verses, what does it mean to ask and seek and knock? What is the significance of these words? Asking represents humility. Asking is acknowledging some lack on my part. It's acknowledging that I don't know. That's why I need to ask. I don't have. That's why I need to ask. I have a need. So asking is admitting our needs to God. And for some of us, that's just pretty hard to do, to admit our needs. Years ago, I think in our circles, in our society, we probably did a lot more borrowing and sharing from each other than we, do, than we do today. We shared tools. We shared household items. We even shared grocery items. It wasn't unusual to step across the yard to a neighbor and say, uh, I'm out of eggs. May I borrow a few eggs from you? I'll return them to tomorrow in a few days. And I remember Nate Kaufman a couple years ago observing that we don't do much of that anymore. And his... His um, reason that he gave for that is, he said, I don't think it's because we don't want to share. He said, if you ask me for something, I'm glad to give it to you. He said, I think the reason is because we don't want to ask. 
We don't want to admit that you might have something that I don't or that I need something that you have. He says, we're getting to the point where we're too ashamed to ask, so therefore we're losing this thing of, of sharing and borrowing. Asking represents humility. Psalm, Psalm 10, verse 4, says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. You see, pride keeps us from coming to God. Humility draws us to him. When we don't bring our need to God, it's as though we're saying, I got this, God. I don't need your help. I can handle this. I'll take care of it. But asking represents humility. When our family lived in Romania, our three closest neighbors were distinctly different from each other. Had a neighbor on one side of us, a neighbor on the other side of us, and a neighbor directly across the uh, dirt street from where we lived. The neighbor straight across from us they asked for anything they wished for, and seldom, if ever, gave anything. They asked us for food, they asked us for clothing, they asked for money, for anything they thought we might give them. The neighbor on the one side of us, he was an older man, he was a man of status in the community, at least back in his day, and he had a degree of pride in his character, and he would ask for nothing. Not only did he ask for nothing, if we offered him something, it was pretty hard for him to receive it because it was indicating that we had something that he did not, and he didn't like to do that. And then the neighbor on the other side of us, we had a very comfortable relationship with. It was just a sharing, give-and-take relationship. If we needed something, we could ask them for it. If they needed something, they could ask us for it. It was a, a comfortable giving and receiving you see, some people ask when they don't need anything. They're too greedy. We call them beggars. There was one situation uh, where another one of our co-workers uh, noticed some, uh, a group of children coming down the street, and uh, they got to the front of his house, and they went across the street and kind of hid behind a tree and spent a couple minutes there, and then they came to the gate and knocked on the gate. And he went out to see what they wanted, and they asked him for shoes. He said, look, we don't have any shoes. We need some shoes. Can you give us some shoes? And he said, well, you know, I think maybe I might be able to help you with that. Um, let, let me look a little bit, see if I can find some shoes. Uh, let, let's walk across the street and look behind the tree here. And he walked across the street. He said, yeah, sure enough. Here are some shoes. Uh, there, there's one pair for each of you. And they look like they might even be your size. Here, you're, you can gladly have these shoes. You see, these people were hiding their shoes to look like they had no shoes so that they could ask for new shoes. They were asking when they did not need. That's one problem. Other people do not ask when they do need because they're too proud, like our one neighbor. But then there are a few who willingly ask when they have an honest need, and they are the humble. And that's what God wants us to do. When we have a need, a true need, be willing to express our humility and come to him and ask. So asking represents humility. Seeking represents earnestness and, and focus. If you seek for something, you're focused on what you're looking for. Your mind is on what you're looking for. And if you're seeking something, 
If your mind wanders and you begin thinking about other things, you're probably not very likely to find what you're looking for. Perhaps a lot of you ladies would say that's a problem with a lot of us men. You look for something, your mind is who knows where, and it can be right in front of you and you can't see it. You need to maintain your focus. And it's interesting that seeking involves vision, physical vision. When you seek for something, you look for it with your eyes. And Jesus used the example of vision in chapter 6. He talked about singular vision, about focused vision. And when Jesus says, seek and ye shall find, he is not talking necessarily to the double-minded people, to the people whose eyes are distracted in all directions. He is talking to those people who have a singular vision on the things of his kingdom. And when we pray with a singular kingdom-focused vision, our prayers will be seeking prayers. And as we seek in our prayers, we will seek God's will, not our own will. We will seek to pray God's will. Our prayers will not necessarily be, God, give me this house. This is the house I want. Give me this house. But our prayers will be, God, what house should I buy? What house do you want me to have? And then when God provides a house for us, we will continue to seek, God, how can I use this house for you? How would you have me to use this house? A seeking prayer is a prayer that seeks God's will rather than our own. A seeking prayer is also a prayer that seeks God's glory and not our own. And we realize that it's about him. It's not about me. It's not wealth for me. And it may not even be health for me. Our prayers may not be, God, heal me. Or God, deliver me from this trial. But as we seek God's glory, our prayers may be, God, how can I glorify you in this time of sickness through which you're taking me? What is your will for me during this time of distress? What do you want me to learn? How can I be drawn closer to you? And how can I glorify you through this time? A seeking prayer will seek God's glory and not our own. Knocking represents persistence. So asking represents humility. Seeking represents earnestness and focus. And knocking represents persistence. We have a neighbor girl, a young girl, who comes to our house quite frequently. And when she comes to the front door, she delights in ringing that doorbell. And she will continue pushing that doorbell until someone arrives at the door, continually. And I've already threatened to tell her that the number of times you push the bell is how many minutes we're going to wait until we come to answer the door. But I never told her that. And that's not how God responds. If we come to God in humility, and when we seek with single-minded focus on the, prayer, on the things of his kingdom, he is not bothered by our knocking. In fact, he wants us to persist if our prayers are prayers according to his will. And persistence in prayer reminds me of a good friend that I had in Romania, a pastor. His name was the, uh, the Romanian form of Virgil, so I'll refer to him as Virgil. And uh, one time, we, we had quite a bit of interaction with this man, 
and visited with him in a number of villages and communities where he was working. And one uh, community that we visited with us, he was telling us a little bit about the history of that village. And he said there, there had only been one or two believers in that village. And these believers came to him with a burden in their heart. And they said, we want to reach our village for Christ. And they invited him to come and have a series of evangelistic meetings in that, in that village where he would preach the gospel, the gospel message and the, the message of salvation to the people in that village. So they made arrangements. They rented the, the village hall, a larger building in the village, and they invited people to come. And several evenings before that planned service, these believers met for a time of prayer. And I still remember Virgil telling me that. He says, we prayed and we prayed. And he said, we, we just felt that our, our prayers were hindered and that we weren't getting through. He said, so what did we do? We prayed some more. We prayed for another hour. And he says, we felt the same way. We, we just felt that, that there was a presence that our prayers were not penetrating. He said, so what did we do? We prayed some more. And he said, this continued on and on until 3 o'clock in the morning. And he says, finally at 3 o'clock in the morning, we just felt that, that sense of assurance and that sense of peace that our prayers had broken through, as it were. And we felt that a victory was won. Well, the evening arrived, and with it, a large crowd of people gathered together. The village priest was also there. He was not happy with what he was seeing, and he began threatening the people that they need to get out of there, they need to disperse. But basically, they ignored him. He preached a gospel message, and he gave an invitation. And that evening, that very first evening, 30 people in that village gave their hearts to Christ. And they never stopped having services there. They continued from that point on. There was one woman who attended the services. Her husband was not very happy. He got angry with her. He locked her out of the house. One evening she went to church. He showed up at church with an axe. He stood outside and he demanded to meet with the pastor. The pastor stepped outside to meet with him. And by the time the evening was over, instead of using his axe in the way he may have intended to, that man came in and joined him for services and continued attending those services. When we were involved there with uh, Christian Aid Ministries, we helped to fund the building of a church in that village. And it was a joy to attend that dedication service and again to see the village gathered together. And I share that story to ask the question, when is the last time you prayed with that kind of persistence? And when is the last time your prayers saw that kind of results? That is what knocking is all about. It's about persistence. Well, I'd like to move on and address another question. How should we pray? Now, I, I recognize that this is another sermon on prayer. And if you've been keeping track, you might be able to remember that in the last year or so, we've had already 
at least four sermons on prayer. One of those sermons uh, Dave gave when he was preaching on the spiritual disciplines, a very excellent sermon. And perhaps you're wondering, why another sermon on prayer? Well, let me ask that with another question. If you were to rate your prayer life on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being bare minimum, yeah, you pause for prayer before meals, you go through a, a very formal routine, and that's about all your prayer life amounts to. 10 would be your prayer life is everything God wants it to be. You just connect with God in a very personal and meaningful way. You pour out yourself to God. God responds to your prayers. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your prayer life? What would it be? It would be interesting to know what the average of your evaluation would be. It might also be a bit embarrassing. I know my life, my prayer life, is not where it wants to be or where I would like it to be. So I think this lesson is pertinent for us again this morning. Um, we will never exhaust this subject. So how should we pray? First of all, is prayer a spiritual activity or a physical activity? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Well, obviously, it's both. We pause from other activity often when we pray, maybe not in every situation. We may kneel. We may speak out loud. We think. That's a physical activity. But it's also a connection with God, which is a spiritual activity. And we need to remember when we pray to pray spiritually. Prayer is a spiritual activity. And I said before, prayer is about seeking God's will. It's not about seeking my will. It's not aligning God's will with mine. It's aligning my will with God's and seeking, persistently seeking God's will to be done. So if prayer is a spiritual activity, what are most of our requests? Are most of our requests physical or are they spiritual? If prayer is a spiritual activity, I think, again, our requests need to be spiritual. Again, prayer includes both of them. It's physical and spiritual. But I think our prayers tend to have a glaring imbalance. I know as I evaluate my prayers, I pray for a lot of, spirit, or of, excuse me, of physical things. James said, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. In other words, what he's saying, you're, you're focusing too much on the physical things, the things that strike your fancy, the things that you wish for. He says, you're asking amiss. When ye pray, ye need to pray God's will. And James gave the example of Elijah. Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. Later, he prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. Now, was that a physical request, or was it a spiritual request? Well, obviously, prayer, or excuse me, obviously, rain is a physical thing, but his prayer was for a spiritual purpose, because God was speaking to the nation of Israel. God was speaking to the king of Israel. 
So it was a material prayer in a sense, but it had a spiritual purpose. And when we seek, we need to seek the kingdom of God as we pray. Now, in the, in the introduction to this sermon, I asked if you're perhaps becoming overwhelmed and discouraged as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount because it seems so unattainable, a level of living perhaps beyond what you feel that you have attained. And then in the introduction, I also encouraged you to look at the big picture and not just zero in on one little element. And I'd like to bring those thoughts together. As we go through Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, if you find those aspects to be overwhelming, keep those aspects in mind as we move into Matthew 7, and Jesus tells us, ask, and it shall be given to you. Let's make our prayers a spiritual prayer and ask for the power to live the life that is pleasing to God. Ask God to enable us to seek first the kingdom of God. Ask God to enable us to lay up treasures in heaven. And as we ask that prayer, I think God wants to answer that prayer. You see, we're bringing these, the, this Sermon on the Mount together, bringing things together. We're, we're nearing the end here. And I think Jesus' desire in this is to, to pull this sermon together. And as you think about kingdom living, and living a life that is pleasing to God, he says, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. This is what praying spiritually is all about. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us an example of that. Did he pray for physical things? Yes, he did. Give us this day our daily bread. But that was such a very small part of the prayer. When you look at its entirety, the spiritual part involves so much more. It involved worship of God. It involved surrender to God. Thy will be done. It involved forgiveness. It involved praying for spiritual victory. The majority of the prayer was a spiritual prayer. So we need to pray spiritually. We also need to pray persistently. We, also, we already covered this in the area of knocking. Knocking is praying persistently. But I think God wants us to pray persistently. I referred to the example of Elijah in the book of uh, James. James mentions him. It said, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not. He prayed again that it would rain. How many times did Elijah pray for rain? Can someone tell me? Up there in Mount Carmel, after that sacrifice, after that mighty showdown, was it three times? Yeah, he prayed three, seven times. He sent his servant, go look out over the sea. What do you see? His servant, nothing. Elijah kept on praying, go look again. What do you see? Nothing. Kept on praying, go look again. What do you see? This went for seven times. What if Elijah had stopped praying after three times? Or four times? Or five times? Or six times? He prayed persistently. And that's God, how God wants us to pray. I think I'll take time for another story here. Um, I remember listening to a sermon by Dr. David Gibbs, a um, well-known speaker, and he said one time he was preaching at a, a church service. He was, he was visiting. He was a visiting speaker at a church. He preached a message. He preached an evangelistic message, and he gave an invitation after that message. And at the invitation, 
a man come down the aisle, and he said that was one rough-looking character. His face was scarred, his clothing was tattered, his hair was long and unkept. And as that man came down the aisle in response to the invitation, he said people all over that church began weeping, just began expressing their gratefulness and their thanks to God. And so afterwards, Dr. Gibbs asked the pastor, he said, well, who is this man? Uh, what, what do you know? Do you know anything about him? And the pastor said, oh, yes, we know about that man. He said, that is the worst man in town. He is vile. He said, anything you can imagine, he did it. He spent more of his life in prison than out of prison. When we would visit that man and want to share the gospel with him, he would meet us with a gun and run us out of the house. He said, we know that man. Well, Dr. Gibbs said, well, the people are quite excited that he got saved. That's, that's great. The pastor said, yeah, but they're excited about more than that. They're not just excited about the fact that he got saved. He said, that man's mother is a member of this church. And in the last 25 years, we have not had a single prayer meeting in which she did not request prayer for her son. We gave up on him long ago, but his mother never gave up. And she would continue praying and praying for that son, and she would continue begging us to pray for her son. We give up, but his mother would say, he's my boy, and God's going to answer my prayer. And he said, the thing that so affected the people in our church this morning is not just the fact that this man became saved, but that woman's life testimony of faith and persistent in prayer. He said, that's what's affecting the people. And the pastor said, Brother Gibbs, he said, I want you to know, it wasn't your message that brought that man to salvation this morning. It was his mother's prayers and her persistence. We need to pray persistently. We also need to pray specifically. Do you ever think about how general our prayers tend to be sometimes. We pray these broad, sweeping prayers. God, be with all the missionaries. God, guide our church. Bless the pastors. Be with the leaders of our country. Bless the sick. And when we're done, we don't even know what we prayed for. I don't know if God knows exactly what we're praying for or not. They're so general that if our prayers were answered, we may not even know it. And that may not be all bad, but I think our prayers should be prayed in such a way that when they are answered, we know it. I think we should pray specifically. Now, I know that you pray, and I've been encouraged many times by your prayers, even this morning. And I've been encouraged by your words of encouragement and your notes. But there is one note that I received that really stood out from many of the others because it mentioned specifically, the person that wrote it mentioned specifically how they prayed for us. 
I won't uh, mention all the things that she mentioned, but she just went down the list and she said, I pray for this, I pray for this, I pray for this. And she ended by saying, my husband and I pray that you would have harmony as a ministerial team. That specific prayer was a blessing to me. Pray specifically. We need to pray flexibly as well. We need to pray specifically, but we need to give room for God to give the answer. In verses 9, 10, and 11, Jesus is telling us here, basically, if you ask for something good, God is not going to turn around and slap you in the face. If you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a rock, a stone. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. He's not going to give you something that's going to harm you something that you're going to break your teeth on, something that might turn around and bite you. But Jesus does not say that he's not going to give something even better. He doesn't say that if you ask for a fish, he just might end up giving you a steak or whatever it is that you consider better than a fish. So we need to play, or we need to pray with that flexibility that God might not always give us exactly what we are asking for, but he will give us what is best for us. There's this little uh, clipping or reading or poem, and I imagine you probably heard it already, but it, it applies here very well. I think the author was a man by the name of Chester Nimitz. He says, I ask God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for health, that I might do greater things. And I was given infirmity, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. And I was given poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of men. And I was given weakness, that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. And I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I prayed for. And I am among all men most richly blessed. We also need to pray in Jesus' name. Now, I mentioned some verses at the beginning of this sermon. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. Again, I ask the question, are these verses... Simply blank checks. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, I think it means two things. I remember when I was young, growing up in our family, sometimes my sister might come and tell me to do something. Maybe she'd say, you know, it's time for you to come clean your room. And my response might be, so my sister wants me to clean my room. So what? I don't have to clean my room. But she might come and say, Mom said you're supposed to come clean your room. That was a different story. It wasn't just my sister. It was my mom. You see, she was giving that order or request in the name of my mother. And that carried more weight. Praying in the name of Jesus adds weight to our prayers. In Acts chapter 19, there were some men who decided they were watching Paul and they decided they're going to try this thing of casting out spirits. 
Well, they tried it, and the Spirit had a pretty direct response for them. He said, Jesus I know, but who are you? And praying in the name of Jesus gives credit and weight to our prayers. But not only that, it also adds responsibility to the person who is praying. Because if I pray for something in the name of Jesus, I have no right to ask for something that he would not ask for. My sister had no right to come to me and tell me that my mom said something that she did not say. And if I pray in the name of Jesus, I really have no right to pray for something that Jesus would not ask for. If you use my name in order to acquire, some, acquire something or to obtain an advantage, it better be something that I approve of or I might be disappointed. I would not appreciate you using my name for something that I consider of no value or that is disreputable. Now, I never read of Jesus praying for a sunny day for a picnic so that he could enjoy a picnic. Can we pray for a sunny day for a picnic? Well, there's no harm in that. That doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for that. But to pray in Jesus' name is to pray for the things that he would pray for. Probably a more Jesus-worthy prayer would be, God, I want you to glorify yourself at this picnic that we're planning, however you see fit to do that. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would glorify your name through this activity that we are planning. Well, I wanted to look at the example of some more prayers. We don't have time to do that. If you want to study this further, look at the prayers of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and consider how they prayed. They asked. They sought. They knocked. In one case, Daniel prayed for 21 days. Not only did he pray, but he also had a partial fast during that time. And that persistence in prayer brought about results. So these men, as they prayed, they asked, they sought, and they knocked. But there's something else about those prayers that were included in those prayers. Their prayers involved adoration, another word for A. They recognized God for who he was. They recognized him. Their prayers involved supplication. They cried out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness. But they were able to do that because of something else that their prayers involved. And that was the knowledge of their sins and the sins of their people. And they prayed with that knowledge and they acknowledged those sins and they confessed those sins. And because of that, they were able to come to God and seek his mercy and forgiveness. And because of that, their prayers were effective prayers. So that would be an interesting study for you. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Look at those prayers. A few concluding thoughts. Prayer is an invitation. It's a tremendous invitation, but it is more than that. Prayer is a command. 
John Rice made the comment, he said, every failure in life is a prayer failure. I'm not sure exactly what all he meant by that, but it's an interesting statement to think about. And another thought that really challenged me this week is Satan doesn't care at all how much you believe you need to pray. Pray. He doesn't care if you believe you need to pray as long as you don't do it. You can walk out of here and say, I need to pray more. Satan doesn't care if you say, I need to pray more. What he cares about is if we pray more. Lord, teach us to pray. I invite you to kneel together with us. Lord, again, this morning we're reminded not only of the privilege, the opportunity, but our duty as your children to come to you in prayer, to seek, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Thank you for your promise of answering those prayers. And Lord, I, I pray that you would impress upon us the, this whole realm of what prayer really is, the lifestyle, the commitment, and the surrender to you. And I pray that you would teach us to pray and that you would teach us how to pray and that our prayers could be a way of building your kingdom and honoring and glorifying your name. In Jesus' name, amen.